Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, a new technique for finding and characterizing microbes has boosted the number of known bacteria by almost 50%, revealing a hidden world all around us. And stick around or skip ahead to our second segment, Learning from computers? Computers can translate French and prove mathematical theorems, but can they make deep conceptual insights into the way the world works? First, at tiny scales, a giant burst on the tree of life by Kevin Hartnett. It used to be that to find new forms of life, all you had to do was take a walk in the woods. Now, it's not so simple. The most conspicuous organisms have long since been catalogued and fixed on the tree of life, and the ones that remain undiscovered don't give themselves up easily. You could spend all day by the same watering hole with the best scientific instruments and come up with nothing. Maybe it's not surprising, then, that when discoveries do occur, they sometimes come in torrents, find a different way of looking, and novel forms of life appear everywhere. A team of microbiologists based at the University of California, Berkeley, recently figured out one such new way of detecting life. At a stroke, the work expanded the number of known types, or phyla of bacteria, by nearly 50%, a dramatic change that indicates just how many forms of life on Earth have escaped our notice so far. Some of the branches in the tree of life had been noted before, said Chris Brown, a student in the lab of Jill Banfield and lead author of the paper. With a study we were able to fill in many gaps. As an organizational tool, the tree of life has been around for a long time. Lamarck had his vision, Darwin had another. The basic structure of the current tree goes back 40 years to the microbiologist Carl Woese, who divided life into three domains, eukaryotes, which include all plants and animals, bacteria, and archaea, single-celled microorganisms with their own distinct features. After a point, discovery came to a hinge on finding new ways of searching. We used to think there were just plants and animals, said Edward Rubin, director of the U.S. Department of Energy's Joint Genome Institute. Then we got microscopes, and got microbes. Then we got small levels of DNA sequencing. DNA sequencing is at the heart of this current study, though the researcher's success also owes a debt to more basic technology. The team gathered water samples from a research site on the Colorado River near the town of Rifle, Colorado. Before doing any sequencing, they passed the water through a pair of increasingly fine filters with pores 0.2 and 0.1 microns wide, and then analyzed the cells captured by the filters. At this point, they already had undiscovered life on their hands for the simple reasons that scientists had not thought to look on such a tiny scale before. Most people assumed that bacteria were bigger, and most bacteria are bigger, Rubin said. Banfield had showed us that there are whole populations that are very small. The researchers extracted the DNA from the cellular material and sent it to the Joint Genome Institute for sequencing. What they got back was a mess. Imagine being handed a box of pieces from thousands of different jigsaw puzzles and having to assemble them without knowing what any of the final images look like. That's the challenge researchers face when performing metagenomic analysis, sequencing scrambled genetic material from many organisms at once. The Berkeley team began the reassembly process with algorithms that assembled bits of the sequenced genetic code into slightly longer strings called contigs. 
You no longer have tiny pieces of DNA. You have bigger pieces, Brown said. Then you figure out which of these larger pieces are part of a single genome. This part of the process, in which contigs are combined to reconstruct the genome sequence, is called genome binning. To execute it, the researchers relied on another set of algorithms, customized for the task by Itai Sharon, a co-author of the study. They also assembled some of the genomes manually, making decisions about what goes where based on the fact that some characteristics are consistent for a given genome. For example, the percentage of G's and C's will be similar on any part of an organism's DNA. When the reassembly was complete, the researchers had eight full bacterial genomes and 789 draft genomes that were roughly 90% complete. Some of the organisms had been glimpsed before. Many others were completely new. The reason no one had found these organisms before is that the traditional method used to search for small forms of life doesn't work for everything. That method involves the 16S rRNA gene, which is often compared to a fingerprint because the genetic code it contains is unique for every organism. When confronted with a DNA stew, like the one from the water samples in Rifle, scientists use substances called primers to draw out and amplify all the 16S rRNA genes. The problem is, not all 16S rRNA genes react with primers, rendering some organisms effectively invisible. The primers don't work as well as people would like them to, Brown said. We showed that many of the sequences we reconstructed would have been missed by the traditional 16S amplification type method. By reconstructing complete, or nearly complete, genomes, Brown and his collaborators were able to locate 16S rRNA genes and identify organisms without relying on primers. The group published their results in the July 9 issue of Nature. The fuller genomic picture they created also allowed them to tease out traits of the life forms they discovered. All the organisms they found have very short genomes, about 1 million base pairs. Compare that to E. coli, which has about 5 million and they all have minimal metabolic function, requiring them to use fermentation to generate energy. They are also missing many basic biosynthetic pathways and need help making nucleotides and amino acids. They must be dependent on other organisms in some capacity to survive. This also explains why no one's been able to grow them in the lab, Brown said. The discovery of new organisms is fairly cut and dried. Either you found one, or you haven't. Cataloging organisms, fitting them into the tree of life, involves more judgment calls. The researchers divided the 789 organisms into 35 phyla, 28 of which were newly discovered, within the domain bacteria. They based the sorting on the organism's evolutionary history, and on similarities in the code on the organism's 16S rRNA genes. Those with at least 75% of their code in common went on to the same phylum. With these new additions, there are now roughly 90 identified bacterial phyla. This is a lot more than there were a year ago, but also far fewer than the 1,300 to 1,500 phyla that microbiologists estimate will have once a complete accounting is finished. Recent advances in genetic sequencing and genome binning make Brown and Banfield optimistic, though, that it won't be long before we'd map them all. I think that much of the tree of life will come into view in the next few years, Banfield wrote in an email. Of course, no sooner do we think we've seen everything than we've come up with a new way to see. Rubin thinks that a development of tools, 
like the ones used in the new study, make the search for life a growth industry. And, he thinks, it's likely that growth will occur in surprising ways. Looking at things from a different angle may offer that possibility of a fourth domain, he said. An equal partner to bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes. There will always be novel stuff that will teach us foundational info about how life operates. And now, from our new Quantize column, The Rise of Computer-Aided Explanation, by Michael Nielsen. Imagine it's the 1950s, and you're in charge of one of the world's first electronic computers. A company approaches you and says, we have 10 million words of French text that we'd like to translate into English. We could hire translators, but is there some way your computer could do the translation automatically? At this time, computers are still a novelty and no one has ever done automated translation. But you decide to attempt it. You write a program that examines each sentence and tries to understand the grammatical structure. It looks for verbs, the nouns that go with the verbs, and adjectives modifying nouns, and so on. With the grammatical structure understood, your program converts the sentence structure into English and uses a French-to-English dictionary to translate individual words. For several decades, most computer translation systems used ideas along these lines, long lists of rules expressing linguistic structure. But in the late 1980s, a team from IBM's Thomas J. Watson Research Center in Yorktown Heights, New York, tried a radically different approach. They threw out almost everything we know about language, all the rules about verb tenses and noun placement, and instead created a statistical model. They did this in a clever way. They got hold of a copy of the transcripts of the Canadian Parliament from a collection known as Hansard. By Canadian law, Hansard is available in both English and French. They then used a computer to compare corresponding English and French text and spot relationships. For instance, the computer might notice that sentences containing the French word bonjour tend to contain the English word hello in about the same position in the sentence. The computer didn't know anything about either word. It started without a conventional grammar or dictionary. But it didn't need those. Instead, it could use pure brute force to spot the correspondence between bonjour and hello. By making such comparisons, the program built up a statistical model of how French and English sentences correspond. That model matched words and phrases in French to words and phrases in English. More precisely, the computer used Hansard to estimate the probability that an English word or phrase will be in a sentence, given that a particular French word or phrase is in the corresponding translation. It also used Hansard to estimate probabilities for the way words and phrases are shuffled around within translated sentences. Using this statistical model, the computer could take a new French sentence, one it had never seen before, and figure out the most likely corresponding English sentence. And that would be the program's translation. When I first heard about this approach, it sounded ludicrous. This statistical model throws away nearly everything we know about language. There's no concept of subjects, predicates, or objects. None of what we usually think of as the structure of language. And the models don't try to figure out anything about the meaning whatever that is, of the sentence either. Despite all this, the IBM team found this approach worked much better than systems based on sophisticated linguistic concepts. 
Indeed, their system was so successful that the best modern systems for language translation, systems like Google Translate, are based on similar ideas. Statistical models are helpful for more than just computer translation. There are many problems involving language for which statistical models work better than those based on traditional linguistic ideas. For example, the best modern computer speech recognition systems are based on statistical models of human language, and online search engines use statistical models to understand search queries and find the best responses. Many traditionally trained linguists view these statistical models skeptically. Consider the following comments by the great linguist Noam Chomsky. There's a lot of work which tries to do sophisticated statistical analysis without any concern for the actual structure of language. As far as I'm aware, that only achieves success in a very odd sense of success. It interprets success as approximating unanalyzed data. Well, that's a notion of success which is, I think, novel. I don't know of anything like it in the history of science. Chomsky compares the approach to a statistical model of insect behavior. Given enough video of swarming bees, for example, researchers might devise a statistical model that allows them to predict what the bees might do next. But in Chomsky's opinion, it doesn't impart any true understanding of why the bees dance in the way that they do. Related stories are playing out across science, not just in linguistics. In mathematics, for example, it is becoming more and more common for problems to be settled using computer-generated proofs. An early example occurred in 1976 when Kenneth Appel and Wolfgang Haken proved the four-color theorem, the conjecture that every map can be colored using four different colors in such a way that no two adjacent regions have the same color. Their computer proof was greeted with controversy. It was too long for a human being to check, much less understand in detail. Some mathematicians objected that the theorem couldn't be considered truly proved until there was a proof that human beings could understand. Today, the proofs of many important theorems have no known human-accessible form. Sometimes the computer is merely doing grunt work. Calculations, for example. But as time goes on, computers are making more conceptually significant contributions to proofs. One well-known mathematician, Daron Zielberger of Rutgers University in New Jersey, has gone so far as to include his computer, which he has named Shalosh B. Echad, as a co-author of his research work. Not all mathematicians are happy about this. In an echo of Chomsky's doubts, the field's medal-winning mathematician Pierre Deligne said, I don't believe in a proof done by a computer. In a way, I am very egocentric. I believe in a proof if I understand it, if it's clear. On the surface, statistical translation and computer-assisted proofs seem different, but the two have something important in common. In mathematics, a proof isn't just a justification for a result. It's actually a kind of explanation of why a result is true. So, computer-assisted proofs are, arguably, computer-generated explanations of mathematical theorems. Similarly, in computer translation, the statistical models provide circumstantial explanations of translations. In the simplest case, they tell us that bonjour should be translated as hello because the computer has observed that it has nearly always been translated that way in the past. Thus, we can view both statistical translation and computer-assisted proofs as instances of a much more general phenomenon, the rise of computer-assisted explanation. Such explanations are becoming increasingly important, not just in linguistics and mathematics, but in nearly all areas of human knowledge. 
But as smart skeptics like Chomsky and Deline, and critics in other fields have pointed out, these explanations can be unsatisfying. They argue that these computer techniques are not offering us the sort of insight provided by an orthodox approach. In short, they're not real explanations. A traditionalist scientist might agree with Chomsky and Deline and go back to conventional language models or proofs. A pragmatic young scientist eager to break new ground might respond, Who cares? Let's go with what works, and continue to pursue computer-assisted work. Better than either approach is to take both the objections and the computer-assisted explanations seriously. Then we might ask the following, What qualities do traditional explanations have that aren't currently shared by computer-assisted explanations? And how can we improve computer-assisted explanations so that they have those qualities? For instance, might it be possible to get the statistical models of language to deduce the existence of verbs and nouns and other parts of speech? That is, perhaps we could actually see verbs as emergent properties of the underlying statistical model. Even better, might such a deduction actually deepen our understanding of existing linguistic categories? For instance, imagine that we discover previously unknown units of language— or perhaps we might uncover new rules of grammar and broaden our knowledge of linguistics at the conceptual level. As far as I know, this has not yet happened in the field of linguistics, but analogous discoveries are now being made in other fields. For instance, biologists are increasingly using genomic models and computers to deduce high-level facts about biology. By using computers to compare the genomes of crocodiles, researchers have determined that the Nile crocodile, formerly thought to be a single species, is actually two different species. And in 2010, a new species of human, the Denisovans, was discovered through an analysis of the genome of a finger bone fragment. Another interesting avenue is being pursued by Hod Lipson of Columbia University. Lipson and his collaborators have developed algorithms that, when given a raw data set describing observations of a mechanical system, will actually work backward to infer the laws of nature underlying those data. In particular, the algorithms can figure out force laws and conserved quantities like energy or momentum for the system. The process can provide considerable conceptual insight. So far, Lipson has analyzed only simple systems, though complex raw data sets. But it's a promising case in which we start from a very complex situation and then use a computer to simplify the description to arrive at a much higher level of understanding. The examples I've given are modest. As yet, we have few powerful techniques for taking a computer-assisted proof or model, extracting the most important ideas, and answering conceptual questions about the proof or model. But, computer-assisted explanations are so useful that they're here to stay. And so we can expect that developing such techniques will be an increasingly important aspect of scientific research over the next few decades. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast, with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.